Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good morning, good morning. It's a good morning Thursday, and I'm hoping that weather weather is wonderful across the country, and where hearts go out to the people in Puerto Rico and the islands. I uh, just wanted to mention that uh, we're thinking about them every day, and it sounds like uh, Miami and uh, Houston and some of the southern states are recovering, so um, we are thinking good thoughts and many, sending many prayers. Uh, today I have with me Susan Waller Lehman, and she uh, is a private investigator and a process server. Uh, good morning, Susan. Welcome. Good morning, Francie. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you, and you have such a great story. And and today, folks, we uh, we're going to talk about how many times private investigators and process servers get their lives intertwined in a drama um, that it's hard to extricate ourselves from. Is that right, Susan? Yes, that's very true. Yes, yes, that's very true. Yes, we do get caught up in our work at times. We are the middle people. You know, we are the people that work um, between the attorney or an individual and a person, either we're serving papers or we're interviewing or our clients. We, we're just the people that report the information. But we yes, also... That, that, that's our role. That's our that's goal. That's our role is to gather it. Mm-hmm. We gather the information. And in Susan's case, the story she's going to tell us is about serving process. But it's the same thing. As a private investigator, you go to somebody's home, you learn about their lives, you get involved with the client, you learn about their lives, and so many lives are tragic. I, it's it's continues to be astonishing to me how many lives are involved, embroiled in drama, and drama that people don't seem to be able to extricate themselves from. So... Um, but first, before we get into all that, I want I want to hear about you. Uh, you have a really interesting history. So tell me, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> tell me, you you majored in journalism, right? Um, I actually, I, yeah. Um, Florida State did not have. I went to Florida State University. It did not have a journalism school. Um, so what I did was I studied English and creative writing, and I walked into an independent newspaper. It had once been the campus paper, but they had split off in the 70s. I walked into the editor's office one day and asked for a job. And mm-hmm. um, he told me to start on, you know, Sunday. And <laughs> so, Really? <laughs> um, yeah. And so I, I, uh, I began, you know, what ended up to be a career and interviewing people and writing about it. And, uh, and, and, uh, you know, little did I know at the time that that was just going to put me on a trajectory uh, that I would pretty much follow the rest of my life. Isn't that wild how one moment can change the direction? (laughs) Yes, how, you know, you just, one day you just see this classified ad and it just completely changes your life. And and, and that's truly what happened to me in uh, 1978. Yeah. So you yep. actually and turned down a job with CNN. Tell us about that. 
Well, you know, I don't know. Some people are going to remember that CNN used to be just one of these um, sort of this table show that was on all the time, Mm -hmm. and it didn't really have a whole lot of substance to it. And one day I got a phone call at the newspaper, and it was from, um, I guess, a, a human resources person or somebody at CNN. And they had read some of my stories, and I guess they'd seen a picture or two of me or something like this at the time. And they asked me if I would like to come up and if I would like to you know, come to Atlanta and, um, and talk with them about a job. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at that time, a newspaper's were the source of news. Um, right. Daily newspapers were the source of news. Television wasn't really seen as the source of news, and uh, nobody really thought, took CNN seriously. And so I thanked them and kind of blew it off. And, and I think that they got back in touch with me another, uh, maybe once or twice after that, and, you know, and, and really were trying to court me. And and I just thought, yeah, no, that, that's not going to go anywhere. I'm going to stick with newspapers. And mm-hmm. um, boy, you know, so we see how that all turned out, don't we? You know? <laughs> isn't it, it's interesting, isn't it? And, and, mm-hmm. and I, your comment about it, you know, who would think about working for, who on earth would think want to watch a 24-hour news channel, which is, of course, right. <laughs> what CNN was what everybody then, and watches. of course still is. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. We're completely in that 24-hour news cycle now, right. and CNN is seen all over the world. And uh, yeah, so um, I wasn't known for foresight in those days, that's for sure. <laughs> well, that would have been, that would have been hard to project for sure. I, I mean, news. Mm-hmm. You're right. Newspapers were everybody. I mean, we used to get three and four newspapers a day, and right. now right. we don't get any. That's pretty sad. Neither do I. Yeah, neither do I, yeah. And every time I think about subscribing, I look at it, and I just can't justify the cost of it, right? Right, So, right. So, yeah, so that that's, so I'm just as guilty as everyone else of killing the newspapers. So, yeah. anyway. So, that's pretty sad. But, but, I, but, but I did learn some really valuable skills in the newsroom, and, um, and being able to write a story quickly, write it to deadline, and get all of the facts, or try to get all of the facts right. Um, that was excellent training for an unexpected career as a private investigator. Yeah, and and how did you become a private investigator, Susan? Um, after college, I traveled through Europe and the Middle East um, on a bicycle, uh, and uh, and I had I had credentials. Uh, from some different newspapers and I would pick up stories and I, I was a stringer reporter and some of them actually got picked up and, and, uh, and printed. And mm-hmm. when we came back, I ended up marrying the guy that I traveled with and he was just the wrong guy for me to marry, but I had three children with him. Mm-hmm. And uh, I sort of had settled into this sort of domestic life at this point and um, that marriage blew up. Um, you know, it was just inevitable. It was just not a good, not a good choice. Um, so there I was. I was in Gainesville, Florida, with three children, and um, and an ex-husband who wasn't particularly interested in being involved. And uh, so all of a sudden, I knew uh, I was 
about 30 years old and I knew, well, I need to, uh, I need to figure out how to make a living and, and I need and to figure gosh, out how to make, make a I living. Think I'll be- and you said, I think I'll become a private investigator. <laughs> well, you know, it, it was something that set for me, okay? Um, I knew that it wasn't going to work as a, as a newspaper reporter. And I needed to have some sort of a job where if I needed to, I could cart the kids around with me. And... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so that's I what know. I decided. I mean, it's, it's really amazing. Go ahead. <laughs> and and so and so honestly, uh, I I I convinced a a bail bondsman, bond jumper, private investigator in Gainesville to take me on as an apprentice, because in those days you needed two years of of apprenticeship before you could have your own license, and. I already had a very strong foundation in knowing how to pull records, gather records, find information. Mm. Um, so that part of it wasn't such a big leap for me. Um, I just needed to know, you know, how to go about, how to go to motor vehicles and get a car tag, how to go to the courthouse and gather property information uh, to figure out whose house it was and and this sort of thing. And so I already already had a knack for that. Um, and I had, to, I had to be taught the nuts and bolts. Unfortunately, I got about a year into this inter, inter, uh, internship, and the man that I was working for went into a CVS store and to buy a pack of cigarettes, and he came out and he died of a massive heart attack on the sidewalk oh. in front of the drugstore. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, at that point, <laughs> um, I, I need to backtrack a minute. I, I had come across a story when I was working at the newspaper in Tallahassee, Florida, and it involved a psychic and Ted Bundy and law enforcement. Mm. And so, mm-hmm. during, during the uh, late 80s, early 90s, I revived that story, and I wrote a manuscript. So I was writing the manuscript, raising children, going through a divorce, and trying to figure out where I was going to go next with my life. Um, in 1994, I remarried, and uh, I'm, I'm still married to Peter, and we raised the children, and in 1996, his job was transferred to Montgomery, Alabama. And hmm. once we were there, and once we got the children settled in school, um, I decided that I wanted to go ahead and become a private investigator. There weren't any licensing requirements in those days in Alabama. There are now. Uh, so I approached, uh, I wrote letters to all of the private investigators that I could find in the phone book. Do you remember when we had phone books? And, I do remember <laughs> that, Yes. And I, yes, and I did not hear from any of them except for one. And he called me and we agree, he agreed to meet with me and he and I worked out an arrangement for me to go to work for him. And so that was how I officially started in the private investigation business. In Alabama. In Alabama, it's only had licensing for maybe three years now? I think so. I think it's been two yeah. or three years, yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Before that, though, what I would do is I would have a county business license. 
And Mm -hmm. with that county business license, that gave me access to, even though records were public there, it gave me more access. It gave me a legitimate reason to be surveilling somebody or it gave me a legitimate reason. That was my, um, that was my, my sort of my piece of paper. That was sort of my license at that point to operate. It also gave me access at that point to uh, companies like IRB that require some sort of licensing in order to prove that you're a private investigator so that you can use their databases. So So we might explain that IRB is a uh, proprietary data provider that private investigators and other legal professionals have access to, not available to the public, but it's a subscriber database that uh, we get, uh, can gather information from to help our cases. Right, and it's one of about four now uh, databases. Mm-hmm. There may even be more than that, but um, I regularly use two and delve into some of the others at times. So, yeah. So I went to work for this private investigator in Montgomery, Alabama, and uh, he had he did a lot of cheating spouse work, and mm-hmm. so I had many nights where I was doing a lot of surveillance work, and and I learned very quickly that while it is quite an adrenaline rush to follow somebody or to do surveillance work, I also realized that I didn't like doing it. Mm-hmm. I just, I just didn't enjoy it. It was not, it was not anything I enjoyed. But the guy that I was working for loved it, loved, just loved every moment of it. Uh, but right. I, I did not. That was just not. That was just an aspect of the job that I just didn't care for. Um, but I also served papers, and I would do the research and information gathering, and uh, you know other issues uh, involved with doing. Uh, you know, domestic. And I might mention that for anybody that's listening and interested in the private investigation field, when you start out as a private investigator, it is a lot of, what would I say, would I call it grunt work, Susan? A lot of... Yes, yes, that's, that's the right term for it. <laughs> that's the right yes. term. It's whatever needs <laughs> yes. to be done would be put on Susan because she was a trainee. <laughs> Right, right. And so if um, the guy that I worked for wanted to be home at night, then I would pull the, you know, 10 o'clock till 6 a.m. duty or uh, whatever the case, whatever the case may be. Sometimes it even involved cleaning out his car after he had done an all night uh, surveillance duty. And it, it, none of it was very fun. Uh, sometimes it was vacuuming the office. I, I mean, you know, all of all of that kind of work just fell on my shoulders. Yeah. And yeah. but but he did not want me talking to clients, and he did not want me uh, talking with attorneys. Yeah. And that's because he he had taken on other people before, and for whatever reason they had left him and opened up their own agencies. And mm-hmm. he was really afraid that I was going to do the same thing. And it had not been my intention. But after a while, I, I don't know what it is about private investigators, but I think that we have sometimes almost a lone wolf type of personality where we're very, very protective of our work and very, very protective of our, right. of our clients. 
Right. And, I think that's true. Yeah. And and maybe there's not room enough in one office for two um, very strong-willed personalities. Mm-hmm. I think that it takes to, to do this kind of work. So uh, I ended up leaving them um, and opening and up my own. And your own agency. <laughs> my own agency, yes. Period, you do. Yeah. Okay. And, um, and so I ended up doing uh, everything uh, that was necessary to open in an agency, which uh, in a state that did not require licensing wasn't, wasn't that uh, difficult at the time. But what I had to do was I had to have clients. Mm-hmm. And I found one woman attorney, Jackie Austin in Wetumpka, Alabama, who gave me my first work. She gave me a set of papers to, to serve. I don't think she expected me to be able to serve them because no one else had been able to get service on this person. Mm-hmm. And from that, I, I thought about it, and I thought about it, and I went, and I found the person, and I served them. And then I was actually almost surprised when I got paid for it, you know? Um, it was just right. one of those things. I was like, oh, my gosh. Um, I just did that, and and I just got paid for it, right? And that was very exciting to me. And she remained for as long as I worked in Alabama. Uh, she remained one of my clients, and I did a lot of work for her over the years. Even when I was getting out of doing regular private investigation work and doing more of the legal mitigation, I still made sure that I took care of Jackie's work because she was she was my first client and she really believed in me and um, over the years she was just you know very very supportive of the work that I did so that's fabulous yeah that's fabulous right. now, so when you wrote two books when did you do that I did well uh, um, during uh, during ni- in 1989 after Ted Bundy was was executed uh, I I wrote uh, a book that I now call Visions of Ted Bundy, the, the, the Psychic and the Kayamega Murders. I had been in Tallahassee during the Kayamega Murders in 1978 when Ted Bundy came through Tallahassee and attacked four girls at a sorority house and then one young woman uh, several blocks away. And I actually had met Ted Bundy the night before the murders, but of course we didn't realize until after he was caught that we had met him. And I had, uh, in 1979, I was working at the newspaper and this young man approached me and he had said that he had been the psychic that had worked on, uh, on the case and had worked with um, a man who was now a captain in the Leon County Sheriff's Department, well, now at that time in 1979, and that he could verify the story. And I thought, yeah, okay, this guy's sort of a crackpot, and, um, but I had to check it out, um, particularly because my editor knew about it, and, uh, so I had to check out the story. And sure enough, the, uh, uh, George Brand, the uh, captain at the time at the Leon County Sheriff's Department, verified the story of this psychic mm-hmm. and said, yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. He had worked for us. Uh, he did, you know, help us in some way to, to catch Ted Bundy. And 
it, it ended up being a great story, except that we could not go public with it until after Ted Bundy was executed because oh. everybody was afraid of the fallout. Oh. Uh, if, if word got out that they had used psychics, this was a deeply Southern Baptist community, deeply political community. The sheriff was up for re-election. It was just a mess. And in the course of the whole thing, I ended up losing my job. Hmm. And uh, it, if you want to know more about that, you'll have to read the book because it's okay. all there. <laughs> okay. But um, so I, I but just anyway. want to say, let me let me just say, Susan, for you know, we may have some uh, younger people listening to the show, and for those of you that have never heard about. Ted Bundy. He was a serial killer that started in California and went across the country um, killing uh, young women, often college students. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. and he ended up um, in (laughs) Susan's story, actually. There he ended up. Right. And he ended up in in Leon County in Tallahassee, Florida. He killed two uh, sorority girls at, at Florida State University. Uh, damaged seriously three other young women. And then in, in, within the next month, he had gone to Lake City, Florida, and he had abducted a 13-year-old girl right out of her middle school mm-hmm. and took her body and, well, took her and killed her in the Swanee River State Park. And it was several months before her body was found. Uh, he was caught shortly after that. Uh, he acted as his own attorney. He was very, quite a very charismatic, very good-looking young man. But he ended up on death row for uh, both the murder of 13-year-old Kimberly Leach and the murder of the two um, women at the Kaiomega House. And he was executed in 1989. So and, there is that story. You- and, and then you did the Daniel Rowling case from the Gainville murders. Yes. And, 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 and when I was writing the manuscript, I wrote the manuscript for the Bundy book in 89, 90, 91. I did a lot of interviews. And also, bear in mind, I was traveling back and forth between Gainesville and Tallahassee. I had three young children and was going through a divorce at the time Amazing. that I wrote uh, the, initial, the initial round of that book. And always at the back of my mind was, what am I going to do here? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, what, what am I going to do? Um, I found agency representation. I found an editor. I was doing all the things for the traditional publishing that you're supposed to do back in, back in those days. And right. then in August 1990, I had almost finished the Bundy manuscript when the Gainesville student murders happened. And I was living in Gainesville, and I was urged to become involved. A month before those those murders happened, I was interviewing David Lee, who was a Pensacola police officer who arrested Ted Bundy. And uh, a month before the Gainesville student murders, I had interviewed David Lee, and he was at a National Guard camp. And I had asked him, I said, you know, if anything like that should ever happen in Gainesville, do you have any suggestions for a source of information? And he gave me the name of a lieutenant that he had attended uh, seminars with and training with and that he knew professionally. And sure enough, a month after I interviewed David Lee, 
the same types of murders came to Gainesville, and five students uh, were killed over a week-long period, two in one apartment, one young woman in another apartment, and then uh, a young man and a young woman in a third apartment. And mm-hmm. it was the very beginning of the fall semester. In those days, no one had cell phones. In those days, no one had the Internet. Mm-hmm. In those days, it, it was a completely different world. And it was the most opportune time for a serial killer or killers to strike a major university town because you had these students moving into their apartments. They often had to wait up to a week for a phone to be hooked up. No, it wasn't easy to get in touch with parents. Mm. It wasn't easy to get in touch with other people. It's hard to imagine that world, you know, today, isn't it? Without the internet, without smartphones. Right. It it really is hard. And when I, when I, um, uh, fast forward a bit, when, when I was revising these manuscripts over the past, uh, I, I began last summer revising the, the manuscripts and, and getting them ready for publication and getting them professionally edited. And all of a sudden I had to go back and I had to reflect on just how much our world has changed uh, during the course of my professional life. And, and you have to think that, you know, really before 1996, we really didn't have much in the way of the Internet. Uh, and we certainly, it was, in, it was in the late 90s, really, that we began being able to gather information that was good information using the computer. And now, uh, and now one of the first things I do... It. It, oh, yeah, one of the first things I do when I get either papers to serve or background investigations or anything to do, I, I immediately hit Google and I immediately, uh, you know, hit social media and start looking to see, okay, what, what kind of presence does this person have on social media? And, you know, we never, ever had that ability, uh, you know, back in the old days. Never had that ability. It was always uh, trying to talk to people, trying to be discreet, trying to gather as much information as we could on foot, really. So uh, it, well, it changed know- things, but I think that... I know you're extremely proud, that- Susan. You've received uh, several awards for your, your writings and uh, it goes to you at the testimony to uh, the writer that you are. It's very exciting that you've received that recognition. Um, we're going to take Thank a quick you. break, though, and when we come back, we're going to talk about this amazing case that Susan found herself in the middle of. We'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org. 
or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's Choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. My guest today is Susan Lehman, and she is not only a private investigator and a process server, she is a former investigative journalist, she's a writer, she's a death penalty mitigation expert, she's just all kinds of things, a mom, a wife, um, just many, many hats that she wears. And uh, I want to talk about this case, um, Susan, that, that you got yourself involved in. You were serving papers so why don't I'll just let you tell the story because you can do it better than me asking questions. Okay, thank you. One day I received a call from a, a secretary for one of the lawyers that uh, I often did business, I often did work for. And they were inquiring if I could serve a set of papers that day. And during the course of the conversation said that the woman was decking service. She knew the papers were coming, and she was deliberately not opening the door. And not only was it crucial for me to get the papers in her hand, but the attorney also wanted me to get inside the house and essentially check out the house and engage the woman in conversation. And Mm -hmm. that is a little different from from a typical process serve, but I I knew immediately uh, what I needed to do. So I had asked the attorney or asked the secretary for information. Is the woman generally home? When is a good time for me to do the service? What type of car does she drive? Tell me a little bit about her. You know, what's the situation in the house? And she was a, uh, a single woman. She was in her probably late 50s at the time, and she was retired, and she was at home during the day. And she was also uh, temporarily... Uh, caring for a seven-year-old great-niece. And that was what I knew about. And I knew that the mother wanted the niece back. So, how do you get the woman to open the door? If she's expecting papers. Let me me ask a question first. So, it was this... This was not a child custody case. This was a case where the child had been taken from her mother. Is that correct? 
Yes, the, the state had removed the child from her mother. The mother was arrested for drugs and prostitution. And she had been placed um, in jail when she was arrested. She couldn't bond, and she told because she didn't have the money to bond out at that point. And she told someone in the police department in Birmingham that she had a little girl at home, mm-hmm. and she and 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 they wanted to know if she had any relatives, if she had any relations that would take the little girl. And she had mentioned that she has this aunt. And the aunt was contacted, and the aunt opened her door and took in this little girl. And, and was the child I, home alone? Uh, I, I, I believe, I, I don't know what the situation was. I believe that the, uh, that the mother of the child had been arrested during a routine sort of a house raid. Mm-hmm. I believe that she lived in sort of a crack house, meth house, whatever kind of drug she was involved with, mm-hmm. and that the currency was, of course, prostitution. Right. And I, and I think that the child was actually in that house when, uh, when the house was, was raided and when the arrests were, were, were made, were okay. conducted. So the child, is at, at a very early age, probably five or six, when, this, uh, when, when the mother was arrested, the child had already uh, seen all of the things that we never want children to see, and she was damaged. She had not mm-hmm. been in school yet, and uh, she was damaged by the trauma of being exposed to all of this. So that's not unusual. No, unfortunately and it's not. No, no, it's not. And so the woman, uh, the aunt of the mother of the child, brought this little girl into her home and was awarded temporary custody by the state uh, of this child. And she had the child for about a year, a little bit over a year, while the mother went through uh, a jail sentence, a prison sentence, and then was placed on probation. Okay. Okay. And so the yeah. uh, so so then the great aunt has custody. Yes, she had custody temporarily. She got the child cleaned up. She got the child to a doctor. She got the child eating well. Uh, and the child she she had begun to um, be able to make the child feel more secure in her environment. Mm-hmm. And, of course, I didn't know any of this before I served the papers. Right. I, I didn't right. know any of this background before I served the papers. And the mother had petitioned the courts and petitioned the state of Alabama to regain custody of her child. The mother had finished a uh, drug treatment program, had completed her uh, stint in, in prison, and had petitioned to have custody of her daughter again. But the attorney who was representing her uh, had questions, and that was why she wanted me to get into the house. She wanted me to see what type of environment the child was living in with her great aunt. So there was a whole lot riding on me being able to get into the house that day. Yeah, right. So tell me how you did that. Right. (laughs) So I I thought very, I thought, all right, 
How am I going to get this woman to open the door? She knows somebody's coming with papers, and she's not going to open the door to just anybody, and uh, especially somebody that she doesn't know. So what I did was I went over to the local grocery store, and I had a, a small bouquet of flowers done up. You know, the florist will... will you know, pretty much make you anything you want mm-hmm. at these grocery stores and you tell them a budget and I think my budget was maybe $5 or $6 or something, you know. You're not making mm-hmm. a whole lot of money on a process service and you certainly don't want to spend it all just trying to get in the door. And uh, I had a nice little bouquet done up and then I, I bought a balloon for the child and I drove over to the house and there was a car in the driveway and I went up to the front door carrying these flowers and, and this balloon and I knocked on the door, and the woman opened the door. She looked through the peephole, and she saw me standing there with flowers and a balloon, and she opened the door. And mm-hmm. she was very happy and very excited to open the door to me. And that's just one of the tricks you, that you learn as you serve papers or you learn as you need to interview people. As long as an attorney or someone tells you that these people are ducking service and that these people don't want to talk to you necessarily, you come up with these tricks to get them to open the door. That's nothing mean, and it's, it's, it's nothing um, antagonistic. It's just a nice gesture. And if you have a smile on your face as they're looking through the peephole at you, they're much more likely to open the door than if you're trying to be all serious and... Uh, uh, look official or something. I, I just I just found that over the years to be true. Yeah, and it's so easy to see why she would not want to receive service because her she was concerned the child would be taken away from her. Clearly, sure, absolutely. She she loved that little girl. She was doing everything that she could to make that little girl happy and healthy, physically, mentally, and. The last thing that she wanted to do was be summoned to court and told that she needed to turn custody of that little girl back over to her mother. Uh, and and it's important to say that the the great aunt of, of the child had had a falling out with the child's mother uh, a couple of years before. But this woman mm-hmm. invited me in, and the house was immaculate. It, it was very small, but it was immaculate. Uh, it was clean. It was cheerful. There was sunlight coming into that house. The woman herself was was nicely dressed. Her hair was done. There, she. It, it just looked like a perfect place for a child to be. And mm-hmm. I probably spent about an hour with her, talking with her, and forcing her to talk with me about the situation and about the situation that had led up to these papers being served to her. <laughs> and, and I might um, mention, did you, did you accept this assignment on a flat fee? Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so, of course. So of you're, course. <laughs> you're way into, uh, way over what you charge for that service right now. Oh yeah, absolutely. Point. But but that, isn't that always the way though? Yeah. You, you know, yes. I, I I mean, isn't isn't that always the way? I mean, I always found that that the cases where I reduced my fee or or uh, or you know agree to a much lesser fee were always the ones that actually ended up costing me a lot more in time and energy. But boy, sometimes 
they work out really nicely, and you yeah. do you do a good thing by doing so, that, as opposed to just saying, so well, you, wait, here are the papers, and that's it. Yeah. Did you ask to see the little girl's room? Um, I, well, she offered to show okay. me the little girl's room, and, and we went back there, and the little girl had, you know, nice, oh, it was just immaculate, just a, a beautiful little girl's room with dresses hanging up, and she told me how she was taking the little girl to church, and the little girl was beginning to sing, and um, was beginning to just feel secure. Mm-hmm. Which mm-hmm. is really the most important thing that you can ever do for a child is to make that child feel secure. And, you know, she'd had such a bumpy first six years of her life uh, with a lot of chaos and, and exposure to really, really bad things. Um, the child herself had been, um, had been molested. So, you know, there, there were a whole lot of layers to this simple service that really Mm -hmm. wasn't a simple service. Really, the attorney wanted me to get in there and find out as much information as I could um, to see if... if, And the attorney is representing the mom, correct? Yes, the attorney is representing the mom. But, you know, a lot of these attorneys really have decent hearts, and particularly Mm -hmm. this attorney did. She wanted to make sure that if she was going to represent the mom, she wanted to make sure that there was some sort of safety net in place. She wanted to make sure that there was, that she was doing the right thing because mm-hmm. her heart really went out to this little girl. You know, she didn't know the aunt. She didn't know the, the, the great aunt of the child. She didn't know what the situation was. But she wanted me to figure out if the situation was a good situation or a bad situation. The attorney needed to know how to approach this case too. Right. And that's, and that's a lot of what we can do as investigators and process service, process servers is relay that information to the attorneys. Right. And sometimes we don't even know the attorneys, but we can relay that information to the secretaries and that's vital information. That's cru- crucial information in many cases on how to proceed, how the lawyers should proceed with the case. And, well, in this uh, case, the, in this case, uh, this the great aunt told you that ha- the condition of the child—that she was dirty, that she had scabies. Uh, yeah, it it was a pretty much an awful situation when the little girl went to live with her. So yes, it was it was horrifying. Yes, yeah, yes. and 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 the great aunt of the little girl. Like I said, she she brought this baby in and she cleaned up the baby and she got her medical treatment and she just loved her, mm-hmm. and uh, and it made a huge difference. And then she set about doing everything she could to make this child as whole and as happy as she could possibly be. Um, the mother had not. The mother had exposed her to just a horrible set of circumstances. Uh, the mother was really a, a child herself, mm-hmm. and the last thing that that the woman, the great aunt, wanted to have happen was have that baby turned right back over again to her mother, and have the same things happen to her again. You know, the woman was 
decking service because she was terrified of what would right. happen to that child. Yeah. And yeah. And when the reality hit her as you're getting ready to leave that she really could lose the little girl, tell us what happened then. Yeah. So at that point, we actually were able to come up with a compromise. We were actually able to sit down and have a dialogue. Now, of course, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a lawyer. But I do understand how the legal system works. I worked around it for so many years. So I said, you know, to her, does does your does your niece, the baby's mother, does does your niece have a place to live? And and she said, well, you know, I I think she's going to have some Section Eight housing or some, you know, federally subsidized housing. But mm-hmm. she's going to have to go get a job, and she's going to have her own apartment, and I don't know how she's going to live. I, I don't know how she's going to be able to do this. And just by my asking these sets of questions, it started getting both of us thinking in terms of, can your niece come here to live with you? Mm-hmm. And can the three of you live in this house so that you can teach your niece how to care for her baby properly? And you can continue to care for the child, too. And you know what's happening to this child, especially when your niece goes to work. And you'd Mm -hmm. be able to tell if your niece gets back on drugs again and starts having these bad boyfriends. And, you know, you'll be right there taking care of the child, too. And we were actually able to work out that scenario. But she so was very against could, it at the beginning, correct? She was, yes. Yes, she was, because her niece had given her a lot of trouble. Uh, the niece's mother uh, had died. She had, she had been shot in her kitchen in front of the niece. Uh, she had been shot and killed by a boyfriend. You, you see, you get you get into these the, stories. You mean and, the, and, and the like grandmother. Said, it's, like, it's like peeling an onion. Yeah. And... Uh, and uh, so, so the niece herself had been exposed to violence and chaos at a very young age. Um, and the, the woman who I was serving had raised her niece. And then her niece very early on got involved with drugs in the streets and chaos there. Uh, the father of the child had been killed in a drive-by shooting. It just, you, you know, the, the whole story just went from, right. from bad to worse. Mm-hmm. as you sit there, and you realize, you know, this woman does not trust her niece. She does not trust her niece to not hurt her, and she doesn't trust her niece to not hurt the baby. Right. And so, uh, yeah, at first the, the aunt was, was, was very much opposed to having the child's mother come and live with her. Mm-hmm. But again, as it became really clear to her, that the judge was probably going to side with the mother of the child. Mm-hmm. She realized that she actually had a bit of control in the situation, whereas before it had seemed like she wasn't going to have any control. And it was not an ideal situation, but boy, uh, it, it, it worked in terms of compromise. It really did. It, it, so, it, it was a really nice compromise. So did you take that information back to your client, the attorney? I did. I did. 
And I said, this is what we have. This is what the house looks like. I actually wrote it up. Mm-hmm. I, always, I always put everything in writing unless I was mm-hmm. told not to. Um, I also never, ever tape recorded anything unless I was asked to. Uh, because sometimes people will say things to you that judges shouldn't hear or other lawyers shouldn't hear. Mm-hmm. And you don't ever want to have discoverable uh, you know, recordings that could be discoverable that could actually work against uh, right, for sure. your objective. Right. So I would write interview memos. So I, I went and I, I, uh, I wrote up the memo and then uh, uh, emailed it over to the attorney. And then we had probably a couple of fairly exhausting conversations about it. And... Um, the attorney that I was doing the work for wanted to get custody of the little girl for her client, the little girl's mother. Mm-hmm. But this whole compromise that we were able to sort of hash out um, worked very well. And when it went to court, it was presented to the judge, and the judge absolutely loved it. Mm-hmm. But she did not, she ended up not giving custody back to the mother of the child. It was only sort of a temporary thing. The aunt retained custody of the child and left the custody as a dangling, like a sort of like a dangling carrot that the mm-hmm. mother could aspire to. And the mother had to live in the house and keep a job and, you know, make her terms of probation and essentially earn back the right to raise her child. Good judge. And, uh, and yeah. it, it was just a and it was just a good situation all the way around. I mean, it could have just been horrible. And I shudder to think of how many children are in danger on a daily basis when some some something could be worked out. Um, and so I was so, very proud of the work that on that case. So what what I see here, Susan, is that your mom persona kicked in. With her, because this is obviously not the job. You're sitting down and talking to her and trying to come up with ideas and solutions. It's not the job of a process <laughs> right. server or a private investigator. No. But no, no, your mom kicked in. <laughs> <laughs> no. And I, and you know, we, we we so often. I mean, I mentioned this at the beginning of the show. We get so confronted every day with with trauma. Just yesterday, just yesterday, I went to court with an attorney to meet a client for the first time. And the attorney went in and talked to him briefly and came out and said, he, this man, young man, probably early 20s, he said he was just bouncing all over the place. He's bipolar. His father was bipolar. Uh, I'm not sure what I'm going to do here, but it's very critical because he's really out of control. And so... We set a new court date. I left the courtroom with him and was approached by his girlfriend who happened to be in the courtroom. And so mm-hmm. I was explaining to her what was going on. The attorney was off someplace else. I was explaining to her what was going on because we had j- literally just gotten the case. And she said, do I get to see him? And I said, well, not today. You're going to have to go see him at the jail. And she said, he doesn't even know I'm pregnant yet. <gasps> yeah. Exactly. And I'm, oh my gosh. Yeah. So. Yeah. yeah. Well, just make <laughs> and, sure that you get all of his records. That's for sure. Oh yeah, for sure. You oh, know? Yeah. Sure. yeah. 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 But, so, so do you tell him? No, you can't tell him, right? Yeah. No. But, no. uh, uh, 
But uh, there's yeah. a long road there, and uh, he's bipolar, and she can she uh, confided in me that she's also attention de- deficit disorder, and so uh, this child is I mean is gonna have some issues, but anyway, sure. back to your but your situation, what was really heartbreaking actually is what she said to you as you're leaving about the flowers. So, um, at that point, I, I knew that the bus was coming. The little girl was going to be getting off the bus. I did not want to be there. The, the woman needed to go outside and meet the little girl. I didn't want to. And, and I had pretty much done my job and, and gathered all the information. So, I was kind of picking up my notebook and picking up my pen, and the flowers and the balloon were still there, and... And the woman, oh, yeah, this this is what really made this case stick with me. The woman saw me picking them up, and she asked me if, if she could keep the flowers. And I, I and and I was I I had was concentrating on what she had been telling me and of getting out of there. And and I looked at her, and and I, and I was a little bit stunned. I said, Oh yes, of course. And I handed her the flowers, and I handed her the balloon for the little girl. And then she looked at me, and she was crying, and she said, no one has ever given me flowers before. Mm-hmm. And, oh, boy, you know, I still get teary-eyed thinking about that one. Right. But, uh, right. but that just absolutely broke my heart, you know, that here is this woman right. who has probably had very, very few good things ever happen yeah. to her in her life. Well, yeah. this is a good yeah. place to close, Susan, because we are totally out of time. But it's a fabulous uh, story. Okay. Thank you so much for sharing it. Thank you for being on the show. And uh, good luck on your uh, next venture. Tune in again as we declassify, folks, more real stories from real investigators every Thursday morning. And it's PIC Classified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Susan. You've been listening to P.I.'s Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel. 